When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello! Well, somebody went a little bit viral the other day. Fungal. <laughs> uh, you, you changed your Twitter handle. Yeah, what I was quite insulted about was both you and Joe said, who decided that would happen? Uh, rather <laughs> suggesting that it couldn't possibly have been me who decided it would happen. Let let me explain something here. Ed has a wonderful person who basically yeah. runs his life called Lindsay. Yeah. And Lindsay is the angel sitting on the shoulder, when sometimes I, for example, can be the devil sitting on yes. the other shoulder. You'll say she makes the decision. Well, when you're about to tweet something, yeah. she'll sometimes say, Make, no, mm, Ed. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I was interested to know how you got that past Lindsay. Well, I sort of, I think I, maybe she was drunk. Uh, uh, I sort of I was on the train on a Friday night Theresa May just announced her resignation da 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 and I suddenly came into my head I changed my name on Twitter to Chaos with Ed Miliband and I said was it alright to do that I did text her to ask her permission and and then she texted me to tell me that you'd done it and then I leaked it to the the public on Twitter and it went down like wildfire you did a few people suggested there should be a TV programme called uh, Chaos with yeah. Ed Miliband, which I would see very much as being like Run Around with Mike Reed. I just like Run Around. It was one of the few ITV Run Around, run around. now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they could bring it back. So you think the Chaos thing is a game show, basically? You think you think it's not some serious sort of learned sort of treatise <laughs> no. about what life would have been like if I'd won the general election? It's basically it's like... Crystal Maze meets exactly. Run Around. It's, it's exactly that. Yeah, it's the end. Do you but remember a okay game show called The Adventure Game, which was sort of a precursor of Crystal Maze? No, but Treasure Hunt they used to like. Oh, with Annika Rice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, who was the guy in the studio? Like Kenneth of... Kendall. Oh, <laughs> You're very good at this. <laughs> I am good at it. Anyway, congratulations on uh, on Chaos with Ed Miliband trending. We just had a fun conversation. Ed, Ed and I, uh, I'd, I'd booked a minicab to come here today. 
we got chatting to the guy driving the the cab and and it turned out he's a restaurateur who was just waiting I mean, for before his... he we get to that he thought he didn't really believe it was me he thought it was an imitation ed miliband he thought you're an ed miliband I mean, impersonator I, I, well, I should have used my line which is yes but life's not been so good for us in the last four years <laughs> us imitation ed milibands the market's dried up slightly uh, i once i uh, did once get mistaken when i was labor leader for an imitation ed miliband really i think actually i was with somebody in my office who bore a passing resemblance to me james and i think th- this woman might have either said to him and me or just maybe it was to me are you ed miliband lookalikes like it was a sort of profession one of the times i interviewed paul mccartney he um he oh, told me good, that good comparison <laughs> well he says that he will still take the bus and the tube from time to time and if people come up to him and say excuse me are you paul mccartney or you look like paul mccartney because yeah i wouldn't mind his money is that right yeah wow yeah and then sort of no one no one believes that I actual paul mccartney know, would say that i think i would know paul, do you not think i think so I mean, people know it's you i did once have to get out my driving license on a train to show to somebody who didn't believe it was me why did you feel the need to prove it to them? Well, because she just kept saying, it's not really you. It's not really you. You're winding me up. But that, that's her problem, not yours. You shouldn't be, like, providing <laughs> ID. It's not a stop and search. I know. Uh, <laughs> You've got a right to just go about your life as yourself without proving that I still that don't think she you. really believed it after the driving licence. And here we are. We proof it's you. Or yeah. at least I think it is. It looks mm-hmm. like you. Maybe. So so we're, we're in this 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 Sorry, driver I, who didn't believe yeah. that you were Ed at first. Yeah. He, he then started telling us he was a restaurateur, but his restaurant had, had been in a fire and he's yeah. reopening it. And he basically says that he will schedule the grand reopening of his restaurant around your availability he said he said chris tarrant in there previously gloria Honeyford, cheryl baker from bucks fizz but he really wants you to be present at the grand reopening of his restaurant so i mean could could we do a special well maybe location? we'll find a way to go to seven oaks at some point and and it sounds like a nice restaurant i'd look it? at the menu online it looked to make it look great yeah yeah anyway well details to follow details tbc rtbc tbc this week's episode, then. Well, we're talking about a really important subject, which is care for the elderly. I think it's fair to say that the English system is really, really sort of dire in the way it works. Part of it is that, as we'll hear, the history is that care for the elderly was always sort of excluded from the NHS, uh, what wasn't sort of part of the NHS, and that's led to a very means-tested system. Combined with that, austerity has actually cut the number of people actually being looked after uh, since uh, 2010, you know, in the face of massively rising need, we've there's, there's two panorama programs, a series of two. The, the first one was this week. Uh, the second is this, this week in which the podcast goes out, which is about the dire state of uh, social care in a particular council in Somerset and how they're having to kind of make horrible decisions in relation to austerity. It's it's a story also of governments of both parties that have thought about reform, commissioned reports on reform, and they've let gathered dust on the shelf. So we're going to be talking to somebody who's got the experience of the system in Scotland, which is different from England, offers free personal care for people. Uh, we're going to be talking to a historian of the welfare state about why social care has been this sort of poor cousin. And we're going to be talking to somebody from IPPR that have got a proposal to reform it. And we're going to be joined by comedian Lulu Popperwell, who's going to be sharing some of her ideas on how to improve the world. What's your reason to be cheerful? 
What's my reason to be cheerful? My, my friend Tom is a cameraman and he was working at a corporate event yesterday uh, for underpants and he, he popped around on his way home and he's brought me a free pair of underpants. Look at those. I won't say the name of the brand. Yeah. Apparently they're, they're um, underpants with special technology. They've got something called RHT, which is reduced heat transfer. They've got BSA, which is ball squeeze avoidance, and MAB, which is motion activated breathing do you want me to see if i can get you a free pair no anyway free underpants my reason to be cheerful (laughs) i'm not going to comment on that uh uh so my reason to be cheerful is designated survivor is coming back one of the first conversations we had when we were talking about starting the podcast was your love of designated survivor and basically it's quite a story this because uh it was dropped by abc the american tv network but it has been resurrected by netflix and season three uh the first episode is going to be broadcast on friday the 7th of june so that's this week congratulations and for people who congratulations don't know, thank you i mean what, i what is, what is the premise of the oh show? sorry designated survivor it's about a guy played by keith sutherland who is a low-ranking cabinet official uh, in the american cabinet everybody gets blown up in the state of the union he is what they call designated survivor that's the thing that really exists which is he's kept away from the state of the union he becomes the president of the united states and it's about then the travails that befall him as he takes on evil doers and do you have little it's da- relatively escapist do you have little say. daydreams about being the designated survivor i don't i don't like the sort of implication of it for everybody <laughs> else because i'm a sort of nice guy uh but um, it's it's really – most political things I don't like watching, like the thick of it, because it's too much like reality. Designated Survivor is so not like reality <laughs> that it's good escapism. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to cross live now to Ochlocken Retirement Village in Scotland and speak to Joyce Yendall, who moved – from England to Scotland. Um, Joyce, I wondered if I could start by asking you about your experience of the care system in Scotland. Within the first six months, I'd had an occasional fall. And after one of them, a doctor from the surgery came in and sat me down and said, now then, what sort of care plan do you have? And I looked at her in complete non-understanding. I mean, I didn't know what a care plan was. And she set her shoulders and I knew I would have a care plan within 24 hours. I was entitled to four visits a day. First one to help me wash and dress in the morning. One to cook food for me at lunchtime. Uh, Somebody to get my tea ready. And then another one, if I wanted it at bedtime, to get me into my bed things and take it from there. And that's all provided by the state and is is free at the point of use? Uh, Not all of it, but the personal care bits, yes. Uh, So it isn't as enormous a low financial burden as it might have been. This has led to you becoming an advocate for universal free personal care. Can, Can you tell us... Tell us a little bit about that, how you've come to that and why you think it's important. I know there are many more people in society who don't get the care needs that they should. And that's usually because they've become overlooked by the system. I will put my neck on the line for anybody in England, Scotland, wherever they are, 
that if they need it, they should get free personal care. My life was revolutionized. I hadn't been washing properly. I needed a, a shower, um, which I generally had once a week. Um, but that was the first shower I'd had in years. What would you say, Joyce, to those people who say personal care is important, obviously, but that if you can afford to pay for it, you should pay for it. In other words, it shouldn't be free to all, but only to those who can't afford it. I think that's discriminatory because if they if they need the care, they need the care and they need it today, not yesterday. You, you think there's a sort of distinction between paying for some of the other things that you do pay for and the free personal care bit. Is that right? Yes, I do feel that there's a difference. Um, I cannot tell you how good it felt to have a really good wash Mm. and somebody to help me get my socks on Mm. because that was becoming a hoopla game. Mm. If I could hook it over one toe, then there was some hope I could get the rest of the foot in it. But it was sitting on my bed with, you know, with the sock, trying to play hoopla over yes. my toes. It's not nice to have to go around with no socks on because you can't get them on for yourself. Just by anno domini, people tend to need care more in their later years. I'm annoyed that people can't get it in England. Well, Joyce, it's been really inspiring and insightful to talk to you from Ochlochen village, and I'm very proud of, to have learnt to pronounce you Och, have indeed, Och, yes. Ochlochen Uh Thank you so much for joining us. So before we get on to some of the problems of the current day elderly care system in England and some of the solutions, we thought it was important to talk about the history. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined in Jeff's house by Pat Thane, who's Professor of Contemporary British History at King's College London, author of uh, the book Old Age in English History and an edited uh, volume, The Long History of Old Age. Talk to us just at the beginning about the origins of the separation between health and social care. Have there always been debates about these divisions? How did we end up with a system that is obviously so different? Well, the current system really begins in 1948, which is when the NHS got started. And also the National Assistance Act was introduced. The National Assistance Act, for the first time, required local authorities to fund community and residential care for older and disabled people, either provided by the local authorities themselves or by non-profit or less often profit-making providers who'd be subsidised and supervised by the local authority. Previously, decent health or social care really wasn't available to the mass of older people who couldn't afford it. And they had to resort to very basic provision by the poor law, which in 1929 was transferred to local authorities, but generally didn't get much better. So from 1948, the National Health Service was free for everybody. But social care, whether in the community or residential, was charged for on a means-tested basis. And there was no attempt to integrate them, even though then as now, older people had both health and social problems. Was there debate at the time in 1948 when the NHS was being set up about whether social care, elderly care, should be inside the NHS? 
Yeah, I mean, this separation was criticised immediately in 1948 right. by the British Society of Geriatricians. Right. The geriatrics were just getting going. Right. And these specialist doctors thought this really wasn't a good idea, wow. but nobody took any notice of them. And, you know, people have been criticising it ever since. My sort of memory span of politics is about 20 years of failure on this issue. That sort of the 1997 Labour government sort of dipped its toe in the water and then took, yeah. took its toe out. Yeah, it in between 1948 and 1997, was this bubbling away as an issue? Yeah, it kept bubbling up, but really nothing very much was done about it. Peter Townsend, the sociologist, did a survey of residential care in the 1950s, which was really critical of just how bad it was. And that did bring about some improvements. But still, there was never enough funding and health and services remained disconnected. In 1968, the Seabone Committee on Personal Social Services, which was a major review of the whole sector, commented on the slow development of community care and recommended more specialist social workers and methods for assessing local needs and ways of meeting them. So we've had sort of 50 years of failed commissions, really. Yes, I mean, Labour responded in 1970 by requiring local authorities to support families and survey needs and provide better service, home help, day centres, meals, social workers. But they were still charged for these services, very unevenly provided and still underfunded. And this really carried on through the 1970s. And then came Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s and, and serious and, cuts. And, the, and there was cuts, but the, the significant thing presumably also was the transfer from public provision yeah. to private provision. Yeah. Is that right? So a lot of it yeah. was privatised. Townsend's survey in the 50s showed that only about 10% of all residential care beds were in the private sector. So it was overwhelmingly state-provided until Thatcher wanted to roll back the state and cut local authority funding. Things got a bit better under new Labour, but the private input didn't change a great deal. And since 2010, it's just got worse and worse. Has there been a shift at all in the way families provide care, either just a, a general shift in society or people moving away from their parents and grandparents? Um, but I think, if anything, family care for older people has improved over time. And there are two myths about elder care in this country that are quite prevalent. One is that families don't look after older people like they used to, but just dump them in care homes. And secondly, they don't look after them like families do in other countries, in Southern Europe or Africa, Asia. Both are, to say the best, extremely dubious. I mean, the evidence is that whenever families have been able to help their older relatives at all times, they've done so. But it's become much easier now most older people have at least one surviving child. People are better off and travel and communications are easier. I mean, it's true that you know, people sometimes live a distance away and they're very busy, but that's always been true. So it's, it's easier for generations to keep in touch. And it's never, of course, been the tradition in Britain or elsewhere in Northwest Europe, for old people to live with adult children. They've always preferred to keep their independence for as long as they could and then move to relatives if they've got them when they're too frail to cope. 
on balance, my reading of the evidence is probably older people are better looked after by their relatives than in the past, and at least as well, as far as we can judge it, as in other countries. You've talked about the challenges of the ageing population, you've questioned the portrayal of this as a, as a growing burden. Tell us what you... Well, I mean, the fact that older people actually contribute a lot to... I mean, the number of people, older people staying in work past retirement age is steadily going up. But also we talk about care as though it's something that's done to older people by younger generations. But in fact, older people provide a huge amount of social care, of unpaid care for other Mm. groups... Uh, and increasingly, not only are people living longer, they're staying healthy and active longer. And that means that there are more and more people in their 60s and 70s caring for their parents in their 70s and 80s or caring for frail partners. According to Age UK, over 2 million older people in the UK at the moment provide unpaid care, which is half a million more than five years ago. And 400,000 of these carers are over age 80. And that's saving the state a great deal of money because they're doing so much. Looking back on this history, does it rather stand out for you in the welfare state as a sort of failure? And what's your explanation for why it's been such a unaddressed area of policy? Well, I don't think it's the only failure, but yeah. I think in general, provision for older, disabled people, the mentally ill have been sidelined, have been less well provided for ever since 1948. I think it has been a certain discrimination against these marginal groups. And also, you know, these are groups that haven't been able to speak up for themselves as vociferously as other groups. And disabled people started to in the 70s and brought about some real improvements. But the sort of frail older people who need care are, you know, least like able to make a fuss okay well look pat thane it's very very good to get a historical perspective thank you so much for joining us to address what we do now we're joined now in jeff's house by harry quilter pinner who's senior research fellow at ippr and author of a recent publication about social care in england Uh, harry thanks so much for joining us pleasure We've heard the history and we've heard joyce's experience in scotland uh, sort of more positive experience Talk to us about the problems of social care at the moment in England. How would you how would you sum up the problems? So there's quite a few of them, um, but I think at the heart of the problem is um, is that you know in the UK in, in England, if you get cancer, the NHS will fund your care. However much tax you've paid in, however much it cost ends up costing, that that risk is covered. Um, so it might be a really emotionally distressing period, and it probably will be, but it won't be a financially distressing one. If you get dementia in the UK, in, in England, it's case to be in England, you are probably going to pay for that yourself. So you might end up spending more than £100,000 on your care. It's not clear why there's that distinction there. But the implication of that distinction is that either you pay for yourself or you rely on family and friends to care for you. And that, and there is, uh, you know, the, the, the informal care sector is worth over £130 billion a year to, to the UK economy. There's so many people providing care. Or you go without. And, and there's 2.4 million people going without care when they need it at the moment. And it's doubled since 2010. And I was going to come on to that because, if you like, there are long-standing problems in the system. And we'll get on to those uh, later. But 
the 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 figures I think come from your report are, are quite sort of shocking. Despite an aging population, there's been a five percent drop in the number of people receiving publicly funded social care, totaling six hundred thousand people since twenty ten. Uh, spending on social care has actually fallen by 9.9% or fell between 2009-10 and 2016-17, while spending on health increased by 10.3%. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's like the poor cousin, but it's become even poorer. Yeah, I mean, that exactly. So we have a system, one that's um, funded free at the point of need, one that's means tested, and that means test has become harder and harder to, to, to get on the right side of, to get the support you need. And that's at the same time as we have an ageing population. So we, we should be increasing the number. 30% increase in number of over 65s yeah. between now and 2030. And just while we're on the sort of problems in the system, also a quite poorly paid workforce. Yeah, so there's a couple of other problems we want to highlight. One is, as you say, a really poorly paid workforce and huge staffing gaps and an even greater reliance on uh, migrants and people from the EU, which creates another problem at the moment. Um, You've got providers going bust, so the very precarious social care provider sector. And then you've got also just a quality problem um, in that I think it's one in three residential care homes don't meet CQC standards of, of good care. That's Care Quality Commission. Now, let's get on to uh, solutions. You're, you're the cheerful bit of this uh, podcast. I think it's fair to say that the record of governments of both parties is distinctly uncheerful. I, I mean, I was recalling, uh, just to sort of put my hand up here, that I was in a meeting with Sir Stuart Sutherland who I believe you were at primary school uh, then, Harry, uh, <laughs> uh, if I'm lucky, who did the report in 1999, the Sutherland Commission for the Labour Government, which recommended free personal care. And, you know, the, the, the sort of mood of the moment was not for sort of universe, greater universal provision. It was for sort of spending money, yes, but sort of in a more means-tested way. And basically, the Sutherland Commission was shelved. The 2002 Scottish Government legislated free personal care. Um, Gordon Brown proposed the National Care Service. And there was some talk of it being funded by taxation on wealth. And when he lost the election, the Dilnock Commission recommended a lifetime cap uh, on care costs. That's not been implemented. That was 2011. It's getting on for eight years ago. I mean, it's a complete all in. <laughs> to change it? the name of the podcast. I mean, it, don't we if we keep going. Why has it been such a... Why has it been so Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in your take on that, actually, yeah. as the poli- representing yeah. politicians. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I, there are a couple of reasons that I would pick out. One is the system is not very well understood. So so Theresa May obviously proposed a solution at the 2017 election, which... Some, the so-called dementia tax. Which was actually very progressive and quite generous, actually, um, ironically. It essentially says you don't pay for your care unless you've got more than £100,000 of wealth. Right. And and your, your housing would be brought into that judgment about what your wealth is. So it would basically mean that anyone with... with with low levels of wealth yeah. or no house wouldn't pay and, and, and the, people above would have to pay. And the problem was at the beginning, which led to her nothing has changed press conference, she didn't set out a cap on the amount that people would pay. But ironically, that made it more progressive. Right. right? So so because the cap protects wealthy people, and we'll get on to this later, but the cap protects people with, with you know, houses, essentially. Um, so the fact that it didn't have a cap meant that it was really progressive policy and quite generous, £100,000, you know, is quite a lot of money. So anyway, but the, the point that I'm making is, is part of the reason there was such a backlash against that was because people, a lot of people don't understand that they, they aren't going to get free care anyway. They, they thought she was going, I'm going to ask you to pay for something you were getting anyway. Um, so there's a lack of understanding, partly because of that and partly I think because of the kind of people are quite myopic they don't it's not a high priority amongst if you poll it it's not a big priority and that's partly because people don't think ahead partly because they don't understand what they're going to need and what they're going to get 
But I think the biggest reason actually is you've got a low paid workforce, a migrant workforce, mainly women, no low unionization. So if you compare that to the NHS, where there's all these powerful doctors, the Royal Colleges saying right. we need money, we need reform. How interesting. There is just not a powerful voice in the system calling for that change. Why do I think it's been such a so difficult? I think it's partly what Pat was talking about, the history. So the history is this sort of detachment. I mean, I think it's also worth saying, I don't know whether this is public knowledge, but at one point we, when Gordon Brown was proposing his tax rise for the NHS, which he successfully proposed in 2002, we did have a debate internally about whether we should increase the tax by more and put free purse social care into it. So in other words... And what to, was the other side of the debate then? that it was hard enough sort of biting off a tax rise for the NHS, right, which at that right. point was sort of rather unprecedented in terms of governments going out explicitly and saying we want to raise taxes for public services. I think we should hear your proposal and talk about sort of why that's the priority. So, so go on, say something about what you're proposing. So what we are recommending is um, we, uh, we take the care element of social care. So there's a care element of, you know, getting people up in the morning, making sure they're properly fed, they've got their medications... And then there's the accommodation element, particularly of residential care, obviously, where you're funding partly your what they call hotel costs, so your 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 building you stay in. Um, and we're saying we separate those two things up. We say care is 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 the the risk is insured. It's free at the point of need, just like the NHS. Um, and you don't pay for that. You, I mean, you pay your taxes, but you don't you don't pay for that. Um, you would still, if you have enough wealth, contribute towards your accommodation costs. There's a number of benefits of doing that. The first is obviously you you create parity between cancer patients and dementia patients or people that need social care and people that need health healthcare. The second is we've been talking forever about integrating health and social care. This would help that to happen, allow it to happen. It would allow you to shift more care into the community because one of the things that's keeping people in hospitals is the fact that there's no support for them if you put them back into their home. There's savings attached to that as well. So there's potential savings for the NHS as well as just better care. I think one of the key benefits of this policy, which is that it's it's simple and it's understandable, which sounds stupid, but actually in this debate, because of the reasons we've just talked about, the fact that people get it because they get the NHS, I think is a really powerful reason. To Harry, just set out how much your proposal would cost and how many people would benefit. So at the moment, we spend just less than £20 billion on social care, so about £18 billion in total. Free personal care. So returning the levels of access to 2010 levels plus introducing free personal care would see that grow to 36 billion by 2030. So in a decade, we're almost doubling the amount we spend on social care. So that sounds like quite a lot of money. It's actually less than 1% of what government spends in total and less than 7% of what we spend on the NHS. So our argument is to make sure that all of our grandparents' parents have good care when they get older, it's a price worth paying. And we're saying that should be funded out of, out of general taxation. The benefits of that are it would almost double the amount of people who receive care and, and who currently have unmet need. It doesn't solve the problem. There'd still be unmet, you know, there are still problems out there. There'd be unmet need. People but, still having to lose, in inverted commas, their homes. So pay for, you sell their there homes. would, some people would go, well, we should in, ensure everything. We should ensure the care. We should, we should collectivise the risk for care and for the accommodation. We have said we don't think that we should do that. That's sort of gangbusters expensive. Well, because we're asking people to pay in to insure someone else's house. If 40% of people in this country don't, right. don't own the house, why would why should they pay in to insure right. someone who does have a house? What that means, though, is there would still be people that ultimately would have to pay and would, and there would still be some people who would face significant care costs. But 
um, that number is dr- drastically reduced, and the m- majority of those people are are, are wealthier. So they it would be less. Um, punitive for those on low. And you would fund this from general taxation? We've said you, you, we would fund it from income tax. So uh, by 2030, by kind of a decade out, we'd have had to have put 2p on income tax in order to fund this. The reason for that is, firstly, I think the proposition for the NHS, which is everyone pays a bit in and everyone gets that insurance, is, is popular and, and income tax is progressive. So it's a broadly good way of doing it. The second reason is, you know, historically, we've talked about wealth taxation as the thing that we want to fund social So this care. is the Andy Burnham idea of people doing it from their estates. It got labelled the death tax by the Tories. Yeah. Was it Charles Clark used to talk about the too difficult box that politicians, you know, the, the yeah. if, if you can't solve it, if it's politically yeah. too difficult, you put box. it in a box in the corner. Yeah. And the problem is both wealth taxation and social care policy is, is in that box, really. You know, no country has got wealth taxation right. We, we've all got a problem with the fact that I think it's the, the best country has about 4% of GDP raised in wealth taxation. So if you go, the bar for, for solving social care is we need to solve the problem of wealth taxation. What you're really Too saying is we're squared. not going to solve... Yeah, exactly. We're not going to solve social care. So IPPR has been very clear that we need to increase tax on wealth, but let's separate those two debates out. I mean, that's a good way of thinking about it. It's sort of Harry's rule of policy. You shouldn't you shouldn't compound one difficult problem by you know one insoluble problem by trying to solve it with another right. insoluble problem. And let's talk about your proposal compared to that of Andrew Dillnot. He recommended a lifetime cap of thirty five thousand for social care. What what's the sort of balance of argument for your proposal versus his? Could they could the two go together? Yeah. So I mean, I think the I think. The debate here is 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 how much how much we want to collectivise risk and do we want to ensure people's the value of their home essentially. So the deal not proposal says that if you if care costs exceed a certain amount, we will pay the rest of the rest of that cost. The problem is is the majority of people who get to that point and will be selling that you know need to sell their home to fund it tend to be wealthier. So we costed a cap on top of free personal care to protect the remaining few people, which is about eighty thousand people in total. Um, of which three quarters, three quarters of which have more than the average level of wealth in the country, so they're wealthier people, and it's three point two billion pounds. So we'd all be paying in to this this fund to ensure a very small group of people's uh, housing wealth, which we feel is just it, it doesn't seem fair. If you wanted to do it, and this might be confusing it, but if you wanted to do anything, what you might do is make the means test more generous. So that means the point at which. Um, the amount of wealth you have before the state starts paying. So at the moment, if you have less than £23,000 wealth, the state will pay. If you have more than £23,000 wealth, um, you're going to pay for it. We could say, well, let's make that more generous. And that would be progressive. That would be progressive. And obviously, you're making a proposal which is similar to what happens in Scotland. What can we learn after more than a decade of the Scottish experience? We obviously heard from Joyce earlier um, from Ochlochen Village. The Scottish comparison is, is a tricky one in some ways. So there's some real positives. The, the main positive is it demonstrates it's, do, it's achievable. You know, if, we, if we're saying, oh, the, the politics has been so difficult historically, it's not possible. It's just too politically difficult. Scotland shows that it's doable. The difficulties are actually there's been the, quite a lot of teething problems when they implemented it in Scotland, which I guess you could say there's, there are lessons that we can learn for if we wanted to implement this. So the things that I would point to is, first of all, it wasn't properly funded from the start. So um, there was a huge increase in need. It actually induced people to come out and say, well, I really need social care now because I've got this entitlement. And so it cost a lot more than they expected. And they therefore underfunded the system. And, and it's very clear that if just creating this entitlement and not funding it properly is not a solution. And how do we avoid that in England then? 
It's about being really honest about how much this is going to cost. We now know that it's going to induce demand. So all this modeling that we've done has been partly based on, or Health Foundation have done, to be honest, they, they did the numbers and they've based it on Scot Scottish numbers. So we know how much it's going to cost. The challenge is, are we brave enough to put up taxes enough to fund it properly? The worst thing we could do is say we're going to create this entitlement and then just not stump up enough money. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is they didn't properly define personal care so some areas shopping or cooking would be included and your your carer would come in and do that and in other areas that didn't happen right and so there was there was actually legal challenges where local areas said why aren't i right, getting I the same so we need to really define what we mean what is the state going to cover and what is the individual going to cover if you had to say to somebody for the same amount of money why you would put it into free personal care rather than the current means-tested system? Why not just meet the increased demand from a means-tested system? There's some policy reasons and there's a political reasons. What we're saying is we'll do both to some degree. We're saying we're going to make the means test more generous as it was in 2010 and we're going to fund it properly. The, the policy reason is that funding free personal care and funding care in people's homes helps ensure that people can remain in their home for longer, helps ensure that people can be um, discharged from hospital back into the home. So it's investing in a part of the system that actually is what, what, what people want to see the future of care look like, but also what would help save money on the NHS. The political reason is, uh, the argument that we would make is that if you go to people, we're going to put up your taxes and you're going to get not much or more of the same they're going to go well do you know what i'll, I'll keep it's the a new money. offer to people it's a new offer it's, it's more ambitious what we considered with gordon actually and also you know some people will go well you'll buy you know you some of this is going to go to middle class people who can afford it which is essentially your question yeah. and what what i think we've done in this country is we've we've gone we've means tested our welfare state so much that you then lose the support for more taxation and more spending for everybody including those people you're trying to target um, because the middle classes feel yeah. they've got no stake in it. And so this is partly saying we, we need to correct that. Titmus famously said... Abby Titmus. Not, not, <laughs> not Abby Titmus or Fred Titmus, the famous Yorkshire fast bowler. Right. But Richard Titmus said, uh, <laughs> services for the poor are poor services. I bet Abby, Abby Titmus would agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> all, you of life, all of life is here. <laughs> I'm more Richard Titmus than Abby Titmus, probably. <laughs> I never thought I'd make Abby Titmus come up in conversation on this. It's taken till episode 89 to get yeah, to Abby Titmus. Yeah. Or Richard Titmus, actually. <laughs> or Fred Titmus. <laughs> Jeffocracy, then. Uh, it's, it's a utopia. We appoint you Minister for Health and Social Care. And, I mean, what, what do you do day one? Is it implement the IPPR recommendations or do we go full Nordic? You've got carte blanche. What, what do you do on social care? No, I think you do. I think this is exactly what you would implement. <laughs> I would say that, wouldn't I? You're not going to sort of throw your report under <laughs> that the bus. Actually, it's a load of crap. <laughs> um, but you don't have to worry about the politics of getting it through. All the bits that you left yeah, out Jeff of the report. Jeff doesn't have elections yeah. in the Jeffocracy. Yeah. <laughs> I still wouldn't ensure kind of the housing wealth personally because we have a wealth inequality problem. I, I would, you know, I'm going to slightly cheat the question here. I'm going to broaden it, which is, the way that I see it is you've got two bits of the health and care system that are still not free at the point of need, and that's your social care system and your mental health system. You know, they, both, in both areas, you've got more people who have unmet need, more people who are paying for their care than getting state support. So I would do a kind of completing the NHS, social care and mental health would be my priority. That's really good, isn't it? Yeah. God, it's like two for the price of one. Isn't it? <laughs> 
We haven't costed the second bit. You haven't costed the second bit. It's fine. It's all right. Jeff Oxley, you just sort of print money. Jeff notes. I mean, you know, it's a sort of, it's a slightly, you know, I mean, maybe there's a danger of hyperinflation, but I mean. Constant quantitative easing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the sort of, the kind of monetary policy is relatively loose. I would say, Harry Quilterpinner, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. So what did you think? Well, I thought uh, the thing that Harry said, whereby if you get a diagnosis of cancer, you're looked after over mm. the under the NHS, and, mm. and if it's dementia, it's a completely different yeah. ball game with social care. I mean, it just seems arbitrary to me, and it, it seems like it's all right. It sounds like they've been teething problems with the system in Scotland, but it does seem a, a lot better a system, and I just think integration of those things it it seems a, like a bit of a no brainer. I mean, is Actually, what it made me think about is it is interesting how some areas of policy get sorted out and some don't. So, for example, Gordon Brown ran into a lot of trouble when he did 75p for pensioners, you know, the, the increase in pensions. And yeah. then it then led to the Adair Turner Commission, which meant that for the future, pensions would be linked to earnings and there was more done to provide a decent pension for people in retirement, a whole contribution system. I mean, there was a, a whole set of things was sort of set up. Um, and somehow this area, it's just interesting talking to Pat about Pat Thane that, you know, there's nobody, never been a sort of proper champion. I mean, Andy Burnham was actually a good champion for this area. Although I actually think, thought how, what Harry said about, well, you've got one very difficult area of policy to then multiply it with solving it with another difficult area of policy was a really interesting insight. So I think that's quite difficult. So I'm surprised at how it's never properly really been championed. I think it is a massive injustice as these panorama programs have shown and i actually found myself going in a bit skeptical because i've sort of thought about this issue i thought a lot and i thought well i just are there any solutions i must say i found harry's solutions quite sort of intuitively convincing okay maybe it doesn't solve the whole thing it doesn't solve the accommodation issue but maybe that's not the priority but it does at least bring some sense into the system i also thought the thing about means testing was was interesting as well that if you really want to get uh, everybody on board with a policy, you can't means test everything and, uh, you know, separating out the accommodation and the personal care sounded like a small And I thought that idea. came through very sort of graphically from Joyce when I asked her about it because it was sort of like, you know, how, how can you sort of means test for these kind of sort of basic things and there's a whole stigma attached to it and some people miss out and that means people don't get the care and, and all of that. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We would love to hear from you. Let us know your thoughts uh, on our social care episode. Also, if you have experienced the social care system, either here or elsewhere, and you have stories to tell about uh, your experience, then please do let us know. It's reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Cheerful Podcast or Facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. This comes from Helen Thomas, who says, uh, the reason I have the luxury of time to listen to reasons to be cheerful is because I work on my own handmade fashion business. Uh, so I can listen to lots of podcasts as I sew. I love making things, but the real reason my brand exists is because I, like your guests, am sickened by the environmental impact that high street fashion has on our world. Uh, she says we can all rise up against fast fashion in a simple way. Don't buy new clothes. On the 1st of January this year, I set myself the goal to not buy any new clothes in 2019. So far, so good. It's incredible how many clothes we all have in our wardrobes that we don't wear, only to add continuously to them. I'd recommend everyone give it a go. Mm. I need I sort of still look quite I'm still looking for the sort of app that's going to be for my age group because I think we sort of established last week Depop is not quite my age group the, well I don't know it's at some point maybe the teenagers will want to wear your clothes ironically ironically you mean yeah I mean fancy that's dress that's parties yeah yeah, yeah. possibly uh, but what about me I will wear their clothes ironically. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that this, I would like to see. Yeah. This comes from Elizabeth Harper. Dear Ed and Jeff, thanks so much for your brilliant episode about the impact of the fashion industry on the environment workers and the climate. Uh, is that a humble brag? Yes, but we'll, we'll let it go. Okay. I used to work in the fashion industry a long time ago and about to start a PGCE in secondary English. Wish me luck. Good luck. I have some top tips for listeners, and these are top tips. First, watch The True Cost, a documentary on Netflix produced by environmental advocate Livia Firth, which focuses on many of the issues you discussed in your episode. Watching this began my own journey in thinking quite seriously about where all my stuff comes from. We live in such abundance in the West, with our shops always stocked, fully stocked, food and clothing absolutely everywhere. I'd never stopped to think how. This documentary is such an eye-opener. Secondly, download an app called Good On You. It's a fantastic app which rates fashion brands on their impact on people, the environment and animal uh, welfare. Three, follow the slow fashion hashtag on Instagram, an amazing way to find and become familiar with environmentally conscious fashion brands who focus on the craftsmanship of making clothing and accessories. Many of the designers are small business owners and all of their pieces are unique and specially made. I think I'm going to do that. Looking forward to future episodes, fashion related and otherwise. We have so many, uh, such, yeah. such a response to totally. the fashion episode. This comes from uh, uh, a very familiar name to, to me, a correspondent of mine for many years, Fiona Hernmans, who says, hello, Ed and Jeff. I wanted to write in and thank you for 
for your episode on fast fashion. It's something I've been thinking about a ton over the last year, and uh, I've, I've taken up sewing in my mid-30s, and I've become completely addicted to it. Making my own clothes made it really obvious to me how little we value the work that goes into making garments. Even now that I've made a few, a T-shirt still takes me about four hours from start to finish, and a proper button-up top for work takes eight to ten hours. I absolutely love the slow process and realise the factories have industrial machines to move quicker, but there's no way you should be able to buy a new T-shirt for under $10 in a shop. And there's an entirely separate conversation to be had about the environmental impact of fabric manufacturing, but I have chosen to at least minimise my participation in uh, the fast fashion industry. So says Fiona. She also uh, sends a, a picture of her wedding outfits. Uh, her now husband Ramesses and her got married, and uh, she she Great wrote the skirt name, for the Ramesses. Yeah, Ramesses Colossus. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, they got married last year. She made the skirt for the after party out of golden rainbow sequin fabric and made his bow tie too. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here with some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, comedian Lulu Popperwell. Hello. 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 Now, Lulu and I met on a train on the way back from one of our live shows. Wow. Um, and and we, you we, talked to her? We got chatting because you had a very cute dog. I did. Yeah, I used the dog to draw people in. But um, that's amazing that you got Jeff chatting because he doesn't like chatting to humans. people in general. <laughs> and a, a dog will do it. But here's, you know, so, so firstly, the, the dog is very cute. Can you remind me of the dog's name? Uh, she's called Dottie. Dottie. She's a good girl. Yeah. She's a good girl. But then, because it's an unusual name, Lulu Popperwell, I remembered it. And this Christmas, when I was doing my annual watch of Love Actually, oh, no. I saw your name come up in the credits. Yeah. Did you see me in the film or just well, in the credits? Well, I mean, I, I didn't know it was you until afterwards. What were you doing? I was a very small part. I was uh, the daughter of Emma Thompson and Snape. I was a lobster. Wow. It's not called Snape. <laughs> Alan, Alan Rickman. <laughs> wow. So does that haunt you then? Every Christmas. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and every year there's someone new will message me and say, oh, I didn't know you did this, and it's... Uh, How old were you then? Uh, 10 or 11, so... It was very yeah. exciting for me, though, because, I mean, oh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a flawless film by any stretch of the imagination, no. but it is a Christmas tradition, and then to think, oh, I've I met somebody in that film, it was very exciting to me. Oh, well, I'm glad. I think every year it becomes more problematic as a piece of cinema, so I'm glad <laughs> there was a saving grace in it for you. Uh, you brought along some ideas, Lulu. What's uh, what's the first one? I have uh, my first idea is that on the night bus there should be a VIP section for sober people. Mm, um, yeah, and I uh, haven't quite worked out how we we sort this out, but I think maybe some sort of breathalyzer entry system because uh, I don't drink and I have no judgment on people that do. But uh, as someone that uses the night bus a lot to come back from gigs, it's um, be nice so i've not had a drink for a long long time 18 years or so but one of the great experiences of my life was my um best friend chris and i had been in a, a discotheque and <laughs> we were get, no this was uh, i would say early 90s oh, right. and we were getting the 192 night bus back from manchester to stockport and the last song they played in the disco was hey jude so we were sort of drunkenly singing it to ourselves on the bus and slowly other people on the top deck started joining in and by the time it got to our stop everybody on the night bus was singing na 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 it sounds yeah. like a sort of john lewis christmas advert it's a golden memory for me and i'm not sure that would have happened well i think that's quite a lovely pure 
version of the mayhem. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like your experience. No one vomited on you while they <laughs> no, were no, singing. No. I also think you can opt out of the VIP area. If you if you hear Hey Jude going on, you can right. poke your head out and join in. But My wife doesn't love travelling on the tube with me late at night because it's sort of, whereas people are a bit more reticent if they recognise me Ooh, during, during the day. day. <laughs> At night, they kind of... They reach out and touch you. Well, or they, metaphorically anyway, their inhibitions have been shed. And do they say what they feel? It's just more they can be just a bit sort of, yeah, right. scary biscuits. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So well, I think we like the idea yeah. of the sober area. Yes. And on, on the tube, please. Yeah, sure, sober car- Sober carriage. Uh, what else do you have, Lulu? I think uh, smoking should be banned. And I'm saying this as a smoker... I smoke like 30 to 40 a day. I'm a really heavy smoker. Oh, no, Lulu. I know. I'm sorry. I need to work on you. Well. Have you got a technique? Yeah. Mm, hypnosis. <laughs> I've tried that, though. I've tried. Honestly, I've tried patch. everything. Tried patch. Tried vaping. Tried Alan Carr. Alan Carr. Not the TV not one. The, oh, no, yeah. not the, no, right. not Chatty Man. He's <laughs> okay. not giving me hypnosis. Sorry. It doesn't serve anyone. It's not. It's, How long have you smoked? Mm, just over a decade. It's one of those things, if it were just banned as a substance... A lot more people would just stop doing it. Well, if it was invented now, it probably would be bad, wouldn't it? right. Although I guess you would have people who were drugs campaigners saying banning that you yeah, can't put the genie true. back in the bottle, banning things doesn't that's work, true. you've got to get at the roots of what the addiction is. Would you stop taking would you stop smoking if you was banned? Yeah, I think I would. Because Even if you could get it. Do you take you any illegal be- drugs? No, so I'm in recovery. I don't right. so which is why I I, I I I once was an idiot on the night bus. Yeah. Um so no, I I'm I'm teetotal. But I just can't quite put down cigarettes. That's the one remaining. But I suppose the question I'm asking is, was the fact that illegal drugs were banned, was that something that made a difference to you? I probably would still find a way to get hold of nicotine. Yeah. You're not worried about your health, though. Oh, yeah, very. That's why That's why I want this to be one of the yeah. rules. But I'm not... I you're feel not... my sense of agency in it. It's not about whether you're worried. It's about whether you're able to just stop. I don't think I'm beyond help. But <laughs> Together, <laughs> listeners, we can get Lulu off the fag. Yeah. That is our, that would be a, that would yeah. be a big social achievement, wouldn't it? It really would. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. That is our endeavour. How long should we give ourselves? Lulu, how long would you like? Oh, God. Um, well, again, if you impose limits, I'm going to, I'm more likely <laughs> to stick to them. So what do you think is a fair limit? Six months. Oh, right. Six months. Is that, I mean, I've just plucked that yeah. out. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. today is, we're recording this on Thursday, May the 9th. So that's <laughs> <laughs> November. So we've got till Guy Fawkes Day, essentially. Okay. To fix think? Lulu, yeah. To fix Lulu's well, smoking. Well, just the smoking, I think. That <laughs> yeah. probably entirely might be. <laughs> I'm sort of going to gloss over. <laughs> yeah. Great, fine, done. All right, that's that sorted. So you've got another idea. Um, yes, I would uh, really like it if everyone were allowed to change their name, uh, their first name, once, at no cost, and someone sorts it out for you. So, so do you not do you totally. not like the name Lulu? No, I do like the name Lulu, but it's not my name. It's not my real, it's not what my is your so real you've name. D- you've done this. No, I have. So I keep meaning to change my name by default. What is your name? <sighs> Laura. I don't like it. I like Laura. Oh, thank you. I'm not a Laura, though. Right. I don't think it suits me, and I've never been it. But you can change your name, can't you? Yeah, but I keep meaning to, and then it's a lot of hassle, and it costs is money. Is it hassle? Is yeah. it hassle of money? Because mm. I changed my name, and it, I, I did it in in sort of an hour. The thing but is, it though, did cost money. Maybe you're just more competent the than I am. <laughs> I don't. People don't have to do it. You can keep your name as it is. But I think it's odd. You don't. You don't choose your name, and then it's this thing that follows you for the rest. So of your life. So I've been an Edward, an Eddie, a Ted. And an Ed. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, which you prefer, all... Ed, clearly. 
Well, I've sort of accepted it now. Oh. If you could go back and, and and start again, though, would you go with Ted, which was your trendy name when you went to Edward, university? I like Edward, actually. Really? Yeah. Would you like it if I just started calling you Edward? Just for a bit as an experiment. Okay. Until Guy Fawkes Day. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what your name means? No. I, I don't either. I'm just Oh, Lulu, <laughs> I thought you were about to tell us then. Oh. Uh, do you know what your name means? I do not. Okay, I equally don't. Oh, I gave you, I, I what just, I did there is I, I gave you the you opportunity really to make up. something up. Um, it means, Man of wisdom. It yeah, means, yeah, yeah, I'll take um, that. Yeah. yeah, it means Lord of the House. Yes. yes. <laughs> Lily, you have one final idea. Uh, I do. I would like it if uh, things were priced not at 99p at the end, so 999 Oh, yes, totally. Because I've got so many pennies and my dog keeps trying to eat them. Well, the, this is this was this is a topical, Swiss. isn't it? They, they were trying to get rid of um, yeah. 1Ps and 2Ps and they decided not to. But it's a Swiss, isn't it? It is a Swiss. Well, it's to make you think it's the yeah, exactly. price below there's, it, but no one's... Like to, to make you think it's... Well, presumably we all get taken in, don't we? Well, otherwise they wouldn't do it. Yeah, well, I guess. Yeah. I, I will try and have nothing smaller than a 5P in my pocket. I thought you said five pounds. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, there's, there's this campaign as well, and there are problems with it, to try and become a cash-free society. So there are all these benefits. So you would be able to trace fraud. or um, What you... about the pensioners? Well, this, the, this, this is the thing. But What we... about the pensioners? There are also people who don't have access to people bank accounts. People who don't have access things. to bank accounts. But why don't we fix those things? Because cash-free is better. We just need to fix Why is it better? For the reasons I've just said, organised crime, right. fraud, tax evasion, all that stuff would be a lot easier to, to I trace. I always feel like it must be a terrible time to be on the streets. I mean, exactly. it always is because when people are asking for cash, no one, genuinely no one has any these days. A terrible thing happened to me. What did you I've, do? I've repressed this. But I, I came out of a sandwich shop a while ago and somebody, a homeless person asked me for some money. I didn't have any on me and I told him as much. He said, do you want to take my bank details? So I said, sure. So I wrote down his bank details so that when I got home, I could go online and transfer him a tenner or, or whatever it would have been. And then I got home and it turned out I'd written one digit wrong of the number and it wasn't a real bank account number. And now I feel awful that this guy thinks I was just pretending. I don't think you should feel awful. That's I've never heard of that happening before in my life. It's a bit weird. That he gave me his bank account details. Just yell. Maybe. Mm. I wish I could find him again and say, look, I wrote it down wrong. Here's a tenor. I absolve you. Thank you. You've been absolved by Lulu. (laughs) Thank you, Lulu. Right, Lulu, uh, if people want to come and see you, what are you up to at the moment? Uh, so I'm at the Edinburgh Fringe this summer uh, doing a show every day at 10.30. What's it called? It's called The Humble Bum Hole. Um, for reasons which... That's are... what we were going to call this podcast for a while. Yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> and Guy Fawkes Day. Yeah, we'll check back in on you. We want we want the listener ideas here. Yeah. Remember, Lulu remember needs, the 5th of November. Lulu needs kind of, you know, us to come together as a podcast community yes and help her kick the habit what's going to happen if i haven't kicked it well then we'll blame ourselves okay not burning we're not going to blame you we're going to sort of blame ourselves yeah. it's a col- oh, okay, good. collective failure yes don't you think yeah reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
Oh, so we're in the outro. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to mention we'd received an email from Emily Byrne uh, about last week's episode, who said, "Was there a baby crying? Is that was uh, there in a, the episode? Was there? around forty-four minutes and yeah. thirty seconds in as Ed was speaking? And was and there? I don't know, but because it's hot at the moment, and some people still occasionally will talk to people who don't believe we record this in my attic. Yeah. I think it's just shtick, but it is in my attic. Nice use of the word shtick. Thank you. But at th- this time of the year, we have to have the windows open because it gets too hot. So you can." I think throughout today's episode, you'll probably have been able to hear birds tweeting. There is quite a greenhouse effect. Isn't there? <laughs> there is no tweeting, but some tweeting birds. Yeah, I just just sort of. Oh, oh, <laughs> That was sort of like perfectly timed. Yeah, yeah. That was that was that was Joel or Joe with a sort of fake horn. Oh. So God, I tell you that that's that's what the experience in the radio industry does for you, doesn't it? Yeah, it adds, adds a bit of colour, doesn't it? Letting light in on the magic. Exactly. Um, Talking of magic, I fell in love with a cat over the weekend. Really? Yeah. We so were, what happened? Well, we were we went away for the bank holiday weekend, and the place we were staying in, there's a cat next door called Scooby, who's 19, which is quite old for a cat. Well, that is a good age. And, That's a good innings for a cat. And the cat really took a liking to me. I mean, I, I don't like to sort of blow my own trumpet. Uh, I mean, the cat you asked, rather than the, the, your whole family or just you Me in particular, the cat asked for a selfie with me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he said he wanted you in it, but, you know, I said you weren't available. It was quite mournful when I was leaving, I think. I felt quite mournful. Justine said it made me sort of put me in a better mood as well. So you tempted oxytocin? Yes, of course, the love drug, the love yeah. hormone that's released. So you tempted to get a cat then? Maybe cats are sort of dogs without the hassle. I, I, I like cats as well, but I mean, I, yeah. I just I, I like how pleased the dog is to see me, whereas cats can be quite indifferent. I think the milk for, float for or something. Need, is, that, is that a milk float? I think it's a milk float. I think the milk float is <laughs> telling us. Reverse. I think the mic, the milk float, the lorry is telling us. Time to it. wind yeah, up. Yeah. Let, right, I'd like to thank Joyce Yendol, Harry Quilterpinner, and Professor Pat Thane. And thanks to Lulu Popplewell. Uh, as seen in Love Actually. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with research and backup from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by Emily Power. He's been Comfy Balls. <laughs> He's been Chaos with Ed Miliband. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. 